Uh, this summer, our uh, Sunday school has been on a safari theme, and uh, with, a, with the uh, title of Roar, they have, uh, if you go downstairs, you will see pictures of all kinds of animals, and uh, uh, they are using them as they are talking about uh, God's Word and encouraging our, our children in that. And probably because of that, it stood out to me as I, I uh, read an account this week of Gary Richmond telling the story of uh, his witnessing of a live Angolan uh, giraffe birth. And uh, just, uh, just wanted to, to uh, share some of that with you because it, it, uh, it spoke to me about some of the things that I wanted to share with you. Yeah, he writes this, I, I stood next to zoo animal keeper Jack Bedall uh, to, to watch. The mother was standing up and the calf's front hooves and head were already visible. When is she going to lie down, I asked. And he answered, she won't. But her hindquarters are nearly 10 feet off the ground, I said. Isn't anyone going to catch the calf? He said, try catching it if you want, but its mother has enough strength to kick off your head. So you probably don't want to try that. He said, soon the, the half hurled forth, landing on its back, at which point his mother waited for about a, about a minute and then kicked her baby, um, flipping it over from its back onto its, uh, uh, sprawling onto its hooves. Why'd she do that, I asked. She wants it to get up. Then, whenever the baby was struggling to rise or, or seemed to, to give up struggling to the rise, the mother would give the baby giraffe another good kick. And uh, this continued, prodding it until the calf finally stood up, a little wobbly but upright, at which point the mother gave it another kick, sprawling it back onto its back again. He's like, what on earth is going on this time? And then the zookeeper explained, uh, she wants it to remember how it got up. In the wild, if it didn't quickly follow the herd and learn to stand on its own two feet, it would be uh, an easy prey for predators who would pick it off. I, I don't know what it's like to, be, to enter this world as a baby and be dropped 10 feet onto your back. I don't, I don't know what that would be like, Okay. I don't know what it would be like after having been dropped from 10 feet onto your back to then be kicked by your mother until you managed to stand up. And then once you stood up, to be given another big kick so that you fell back down again so you had to learn how to stand up. I, I don't know what that's like. However, as I reflect on the first year or two of my Christian life, it was an, an awful lot like that. I don't know what your experience has been, but as I reflect, I would say that the, the thing that stood out to me was it was just uncanny how many things that went wrong, the, uh, again, the year or two after I put my faith in Christ. I think my initial impression was everything will just get fixed, go easy, life will be simple, and I will just walk through the daisies and, and, I don't know, have picnics and prayer meetings. I just, I expected things to be very simple. And instead, I found myself suddenly and unexpectedly unemployed. Uh, I found myself dealing with financial problems. I found myself with 
uh, relational problems with people who weren't all that excited about my newfound faith. And I would have found that very discouraging and bewildering and confusing had it not been for someone who took an interest in me and had the foresight to tell me from the scriptures about the reality of Satan. To tell me that there was one who was opposing me as I was seeking to seek and to follow God. He helped me. And honestly, if I hadn't have had that help, I don't know where I would be today. I don't know how I would have made sense of all that I saw happening in my life and and going on uh, in me. Today's passage is one of those passages that I believe is intended to give us help and to help us to understand uh, the reality of Satan and to to know how to respond to him. Because when I first was this, I, I mentioned this person tried to help me, tried to help me understand the reality of Satan. And, and my first response was, you're completely nuts. This is crazy. I've, I'm still struggling. Uh, I've just come to understand and believe in God. That was a stretch for me. But to understand and believe in the reality of Satan just seemed too, too hard to take. But as he explained to me what the scripture said about him, rather than the figure with the pitchfork and the horns that I'd kind of seen in, in, in popular culture, I began to see that what he was describing in the scriptures about Satan explained a lot of things that I was seeing, um, helped me make sense of a lot of things, things that I was seeing in my life. I hope, that'll do, I hope that God's word will do something of that in your life this morning. Uh, we are uh, in a series in 1 Thessalonians, and we come today to chapter 2, verse 17. We encourage you to uh, open there with me. Where if, if in the Pew Bible, it's page 927. And just, just want to uh, follow along as I read. Keep it open before you as, uh, as we walk through the passage. Uh, and uh, just, just want to, uh, you to see what, what God would teach us through this passage. Uh, we are, uh, this is a, a letter Paul wrote to a church in Thessalonica that he had planted about a year uh, since Uh, He established the church, and I'm going to pick up at verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one may be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. This is the word of God. Now, this passage gives us what I believe are uh, three things to help us to stand in the face of Satan and his opposition. 
And I just want to walk through them with you one by one. The, the first thing that you need to stand against Satan is you need to know that he's coming for you. You need someone to warn you what he's like, what he does, uh, so that you aren't caught unprepared, unaware. You need to know that he's coming for you. If you've been with us, you know that Paul had spent just a brief time in, in Thessalonica. He was just there for three weeks, and he was run out of town. Uh, there was uh, a, just a short time to preach the gospel and establish the, be, the, the believers. But as he did so, as he lifted them up and pointed them to the hope of Jesus Christ, something else, there was something else that he taught them. He taught them about the reality of the opposition that would come. He taught them about suffering, about persecution. He taught them about the work of Satan. And and it's a good thing that he did because almost as soon as he left, they would begin to feel the opposition that people had to their faith. In verse 3, you'll see him talking about the afflictions that they're facing. And he says, you yourselves know that we are destined for this. This is normal. This is what I told you would happen. This is This is a part of the package. Or in verse 4, he says, We kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. You you might think, well, maybe that's just because, you know, there was kind of a strange situation in Thessalonica. Maybe this was an unusual case because when Paul went in there, as I said um, earlier in our series, there was a riot that broke out and, and the authorities were against him. Maybe this was just an unusual strange situation in Thessalonica, and that's why he's telling them in the letter, watch out for this. Things aren't going to go well. Um, You're going to face persecution because you're in a particularly anti-Christian town. Not the case. This was a normal part of Paul's discipleship, a regular part of how he explained the Christian life to people. In 2 Timothy 3.12, for instance, he said, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This will happen. It'll happen because we serve a Savior who was was rejected, opposed. He was uh, uh, crucified. And if we are going to follow in his footsteps, it stands to reason that we will experience a measure of the same kind of suffering, the same kind of opposition that he felt. In 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13, it says, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test test you, as though something strange were happening to you. And yet what happens when something terrible, when we face an incredible trial in our life, what do we think? Why is this strange thing happening to me? We're surprised. We, We are taken aback. We're taken off guard. We think, where on earth does this come from? The Angolan giraffe kicked her baby because she knew that predators were coming. It was an act of grace and mercy to protect her baby for what she knew was inevitable. And God warns us beforehand so that we know that attacks and opposition will come, so that we know what we are in for, so that we're ready when it does come because the day will come. So what can we expect from Satan? This passage gives us a number of things. So the first thing we can expect is persecution. In verse 17, Paul started this section saying, we were torn away from you. 
He was literally run out of town as those who opposed his message stirred up a mob, got the authorities against him, and created this, uh, this sense of, uh, uh, of opposition. And the reality is that if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, not everyone around you is happy about that. Not everyone in our society is thrilled with that decision. There will be persecution. We'll also face accusation. In verse 18, Satan is named. Uh, but the word Satan just means the accuser. He's, he's the adversary, the one who stands against us. And he accuses us. Uh, in Revelation 12.10, he's called the accuser of our brothers. And it says, he accuses them day and night before our God. D do you ever feel condemning voices, uh, voices of accusation that you, you're not good enough. You're not, you're not passing the grade in, in this thing called Christianity. You're not, you're not following God faithful enough. You are not true enough to Jesus Christ. You, 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 you might as well just pack it in. There, there's not really any, any sense of you even continuing with this because you just keep blowing it. Ever hear voices like that? I, I, I know it, when I first came to Christ, I just felt awful all the time, and I didn't know why. I, I felt these voices of condemnation, and it wasn't until someone described to me and, and, and explained to me that there is this reality, this person called Satan, who is and has as his, one of the main, main ways that he functions, he accuses people. He condemns people. He seeks to convince people of, uh, of, of their unworthiness to God so that, guess what? You turn aside from the way and you disqualify yourself from uh, what he would desire to do in your life. I, honestly, I, I felt if there was any test for the Christian life, I'd failed it. Because I kept hearing those voices. You have failed. You failed it again. You blew it again. And we need to be prepared for the accusations because accusation is a part of who Satan is. That's what he does. We're also going to face opposition. After Paul was run out of town, he wanted to get back to Thessalonica. He wanted to go back and encourage the, the church, to encourage the people. But he said in, uh, in verse 18, after saying how badly he wanted to visit him, he says, but Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us. He uses a word here that was used when, when an, an, uh, an army was trying to escape. What they would do, they would, they would burn up and break up the roads uh, behind them so that the pursuing army wouldn't be able to, to pass. They hindered the army that way. That's, that's the, the word that's being used here. And he's saying, that's what Satan has done. He's, he's blocked our path. He's, he's kept us from you. Now, for some of you who have been along with us on the, on the journey, I don't know if a three, three years in, in a parking lot application was Satan hindering us. I, I, don't know what, I don't know what was up there. I don't understand all of the details of, uh, of, of what took place. What I do know is if you or I or us as a church is going to attempt anything for God, anything that is... Uh, 
in, in line with his purposes, his plans, anything that brings Christ glory, brings God pleasure, there will be opposition. Satan will seek to hinder us. And we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be like, what on earth is that happening for? What, is, does God not love us anymore? Is, 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 is somehow God's plan been derailed? No, there will be opposition. We should expect it. We should count on it. We'll also face temptation. In verse 5, Paul calls Satan the tempter. And he says, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you. Paul feared that when the opposition came to this fledgling church in, in Thessalonica, he feared that what would happen would be they would be tempted to hold back, to retreat, to take a detour, to take an easy route, to, to somehow go, go quiet or go undercover in their faith or to, to, to hold back from what God wanted to accomplish in their lives. He feared that. He feared that because he knew that Satan was a tempter, that that's what he does, that that's what he has been doing from the beginning in the garden. Again, uh, when, I, when I first became a Christian, there were two things that I experienced. One of the things that I experienced is that I, I put my faith in Christ and I begin to experience God beginning to change me from the inside out. It, uh, what I would later understand to be the, the work of the Holy Spirit in giving me righteous desires and righteous thoughts, things would come into my mind and I was like, I never think like that. Like, I never want to do those kinds of things. What, what, what's, what's happening? And I, I would just understand God is changing me from the inside out. I understood that. But another thing happened was that even as the Holy Spirit began to change me from the inside out, there were these anti-God, evil thoughts that would come into my mind. I would be in prayer, and, and I would just, a thought would come into my mind. I'm like, where on earth did that come from? What is that? And, and I might have been tempted to think I was completely nuts going back and forth between these different uh, poles, and yet I would learn from the Scripture, no, in the same way that the Holy Spirit comes into a person's life, draws them to himself, there is an adversary who opposes us. There is one who tempts us and will put those thoughts into our minds, will, will, will call us to, to take the detour, to hold back, to go undercover, to, to retreat to whatever it is that would keep us from following and glorifying God. We can expect Temptation. It will come. It is a part of the package. J.C. Ryle wrote this of, of, of temptation. I think it's helpful in understanding how Satan can work in our lives. He says, We're too apt to forget that temptation to sin will rare, rarely present itself to us in its true colors, saying, I am your deadly enemy and I want to ruin you forever in hell. He says, It doesn't do that. It never works that way. Far more subtle. He says, oh no, sin comes to us like Judas with a kiss. Or like Joab with outstretched hand and flattering words. He says the forbidden fruit that, uh, in, the, in the garden, it, it, didn't look, it didn't look evil. It didn't look dangerous. It was good and desirable. And yet it led to Adam and Eve being cast out of Eden. And then he says, Walking idly on his palace roof seemed harmless enough to David. But it ended 
in adultery and murder. Temptation never feels like temptation until it's become sin. It sneaks up on us. And we need to understand and be prepared for the fact there is a tempter. There will be temptation. We can count on it. And so if somebody told you that the Christian life was devoid of these things, would be smooth sailing, and you're just going to be healthy and prosperous and and, and, and there's just going to be no, no, no obstacles in your path, they didn't do you a service. That isn't helpful. In order to, to be prepared for Satan, you need to know he's coming for you. You need to know that he is a reality. Unfortunately, just knowing that he's coming, though, isn't enough. It helps. It's a start, but it's not enough. One of the reasons that the giraffe's mother kicked her baby to get him on his feet was that she knew that this baby, if it didn't learn to stand up and to get with the herd, it would always be prey to the lions and the hyenas. Got to stick with the herd. Got to stay in, in, in uh, a place of safety. And it's similar for us as Christians. To stand against Satan, we need people who have our back. We need people who care about us and will invest in us spiritually. And that doesn't just happen. It happens as we care about others and invest in them spiritually. In order to stand against Satan, you need people who have your back. Now, the solution to the reality of the spiritual battle in this passage, as you look at it, isn't just get stronger. It isn't, the message isn't, Satan's coming, so do some spiritual exercises so that you can fend him off. It, it, that's not the message. It seems to be all about sticking with the herd, investing in caring relationships. I want you to see that in the relationship that Paul had with the Thessalonians. In verse 17, when Paul was torn away from them, he says he was torn away in person, not in heart. He had this deep bond of relationship for people in Christ, a deep bond with the Thessalonians so that you could kick him out of Thessalonica, but you couldn't kick Thessalonica out of his heart. He, 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 he had this commitment to them and, and they to him. He had a love for them. In verse 19, he calls them his hope and joy. In verse 20, he calls them his glory and joy. He loved them. He was invested in them, cared for them. He had the same kind of, of hope and joy in the Thessalonians after spending just three weeks with them as many of us in Toronto have had with Kawhi Leonard over the last year. Like we, we, our, our excitement is in him, our hope and our expectation. But he developed that not with, not with the, the, the prize athlete. He had developed that with some people who were seeking to grow in Christ. Not his, they weren't his best friends. They, they didn't have a lot in common. They didn't have a long history together. But he had invested himself in them and they in him. Are you investing in those kinds of caring relationships? Are, are you seeking to grow in the kind of nurturing relationships that will be a strength to you when the storm comes? Because the storm is coming. The battle doesn't just affect other people. It affects all of us. Are you taking the time to invest in the kinds of relationships that will 
nurture others now and maybe nurture you someday. To do that, you need FaceTime. It's an interesting case study with Paul because he was such a gifted writer, you'd think, I don't think he really needed to see anyone. Like, he, he was just such a great writer. Many of his letters became inspired scripture. So if anybody could, could just write and that would be enough, it would be the Apostle Paul. But notice what he says in verse 17. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Somehow, even the Apostle Paul's letters weren't enough. His words weren't enough. And that's important to us because we live in, a, in an age where there are a lot of texts and emails and likes and follows, not a lot of FaceTime. We're, we're spending less and less time looking at each other's faces and more and more time holding up and, and distancing ourselves from one another. That makes us vulnerable. That, that makes us pray when the predator comes. And he wants us to be warned of that. If you're going to help or support someone, you've got to see their face. You've got to see their, their burdens. You've got to see their cares and their concerns. You've, you've got to be there. You've got to have FaceTime. But notice also, you, it's not just FaceTime. It's not like just anyone will do. It, it, it's FaceTime with people who will build up your faith. Your buddies are great. Your, your friends are wonderful. Coworkers can be nice, sometimes not, but sometimes coworkers can be really nice. But what we really need FaceTime with is people who will build you up, who will strengthen you, who will encourage you, who, who share your, your commitment to God's word, who can, can see the... the the heart that you have for God and know the reality of the spiritual battle. You need people who will lift you up in that. In verse 2, Paul sent Timothy to Thessalonica. And you'd think, well, it wasn't like Timothy was their best friend. It wasn't like he had this, this deep history with them. Like, it would be a little bit awkward at first. He didn't, he didn't know the scene in, in Thessalonica. There would be some, some just in, initial tension to, to overcome. But Paul knew that Timothy shared the Thessalonians' love for Jesus Christ and their desire to grow in him. And so he sent them. He said, I can't get there. Satan's hindered me. I'm going to get someone else there because they need face time. They need time with another believer who will encourage them, someone who's been there. And the reality is that we all need that. When it says Paul sent Timothy there, it says he sent them there to, to, to establish and exhort them in their faith. You need that. I need that. We, we all need that kind of nurturing, nurturing support and care. And, and that's what we're trying to do through our life groups. We're, we're trying to encourage people to set aside time each week for face time with other believers who will build you up. Other believers who you can build up, who you can strengthen, you can invest in. I, I think that most of us would like all of these things. We'd, we'd love someone to, to, to pray for us, encourage us, and lift us up and bless us. I, who doesn't want that? Like, we all want that. The problem is that the Bible calls us to do that for one another. 
It calls us to love one another and care for one another, bear one another's burdens, encourage one another. It calls us to do one of the, all of those things for one another. And our plan for doing that is coming together in life groups and getting face time with one another. We're, we're trying to, to build you up because we know that the battle is coming. We know that the, the storm will one day hit your doorstep. And so we strengthen each other today because we know that day is coming. And I'm telling you that now because, uh, hey, we're in July. Most of our, most of our life groups aren't meeting, so, so hey, the, the pressure's off. But I, I'm saying that now because I want to encourage you to, to make some plans for September, to make some t- plans to be a part of one of our groups. I know this doesn't come easily. I know that if I were to ask you, hey, can you, can you be in a group tonight? You're like, oh my goodness, my schedule is crazy. I couldn't possibly do tonight. No, could, could you do September? Well, maybe not yet, but I'm encouraging to, to plan to do that today, to somehow plan to make time to get with other people. Because when you are away from the herd, you are vulnerable. You are prey for the lions, the hyenas. You need the support and strength of other people who've got your back. Now, I'll bet that there's no one in this room would disagree with me about this in principle. But I think we do something like what Jack Handy did. I don't, I don't know if you know Jack Handy. Jack Handy was, I don't know, if maybe the 90s, he was, he was famous for a segment called Deep Thoughts with Jack Handy. I don't know if that rings a bell for anyone. Anyway, he, in addition to Deep Thoughts with Jack Handy, he wrote a book he called Fuzzy Memories. And in the book Fuzzy Memories, he tells the story of a schoolyard bully. And the bully, uh, the bully would come up to Jack every, every, every day and he would ask for his lunch money. He said, I, I, I want your money. And the problem with the bully was he was so much bigger than Jack. Jack was like, I don't know, I can't do anything. I just got to give him my money. But that, that gets old because it goes on and on. It continued. And finally he said, I'd had enough. And he said, I decided to fight back. So what he did, he started taking karate lessons. And he was thinking, okay, I've got a solution now. I'm going to fight back. I'm taking karate lessons. But then as he continued, he realized the karate instructor is charging five bucks a lesson. And that's kind of expensive. And eventually he decided, wait a second, five bucks is, I think, too much. I, I think what I'm going to do is just stop taking karate and pay the bully instead. And the thing is, I think that many of us do something like that when it comes to the Christian life. We understand the need for it. We, we, we've got a plan. We, we know that there is a bully, but hey, five bucks for a karate lesson is five bucks, and I don't know if I want to pay that cost. And so we pay the bully instead. With our life groups, uh, the, the cost isn't much. We don't even charge five bucks a lesson. Like the, there's not a big, a, not a big cost for this. What it is is a cost is something what it, which I know is more precious to most of you and to, to all of us. It, it's it's a cost of your time. It's an evening a week when you aren't going to spend in your pajamas and uh, curled up watching Netflix. It, it's it, you sacrifice something. You 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 sacrifice something. That's why I'm telling you now in July, not in September, because I know you need to prepare for this. You need to mentally mentally get ready for this. You, but I, I, I want to encourage you. 
you are vulnerable away from the hurt. We, we can do very little fellowship here on a Sunday morning, right? We, we try. We, we, we try and do our best. But there's very little real connection that can take place on a Sunday morning. You need FaceTime with people where you can get out of your rows into circles and connect at a heart level. And, and, we try and we try and do that. And like I said, it's not even $5 a lesson. Want you to get to know someone who's got your back because you've got their back. We want you to get connected with a group to stay with a herd because there's power in fellowship. Finally, to stand against Satan, you need to trust in Jesus' victory. And this is where our, our series, Living Life in Light of the End, really comes out. And it, it's all through the book of 1 Thessalonians. It, it's, it is this orientation towards the big picture, living life in light of what we know is coming. If you're only ever living in the here and now, you just will not have enough strength for the battle. You just won't. You, if, if it's all about today, then today will overwhelm you. You need to step back and to see God's big picture. You need to see that big picture and keep the end in mind. To stand against Satan, we need to trust in what Jesus will eventually accomplish in his victory. I want you to see how this plays out in this passage. Uh, even when Satan was hindering Paul and accusing Paul and standing in Paul's way and tempting Paul, notice what he says in verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting? And you're thinking, I don't know. I, I would have packed it in by now. I wouldn't have. Like if, if they were putting riots up every time I showed up for work, I would just go and like leave. I wouldn't continue. What, what hope could I have? What joy would there be? But in referring to a crown, he gives us a hint of this. The crown here isn't a royal tiara. It, it isn't a king's crown. This is the crown of a victor. It's a, uh, the, the laurel wreath that was given to a, uh, a champion in an Olympic event, in an in a ancient Greek uh, athletic contest. And it's a reminder that Paul lived with his eyes on the reward that he would receive from his Savior. He lived to, uh, to receive uh, blessing and encouragement that would come at a future date, not, not necessarily today. There would be some blessings in Paul's life uh, on a day-to-day basis, but he looked ultimately to another day. He looked to, forward to a reward that he would receive from his Savior. And some of you, I know at this point, will get a little uncomfortable and you will say, ah, I'm, I'm not all about rewards. I'm just doing it for the Lord. And, and you'll, you'll say that and you'll feel that. When you say something like that, you need to stop and ask yourself, are you really more spiritual than the Apostle Paul? Because it was clear that Paul had his, uh, he had his eyes on uh, the, the reward, the crown that Jesus would prepare for him. The thing was, if you're not having your eyes focused on that crown that Jesus holds out to those who would, uh, who would follow him. In this case, Paul has invested himself in a group of people and he, he, he is holding them up as this is, uh, this is a, uh, what I will joyfully give to my Savior as, as an expression of my, my love and service. He, he had that sense of, of reward. And I think that when we don't, have any 
any understanding of this or any expectation of this, what we can do is in saying, oh no, I'm just about, it's just for the Lord, for me. What we in, inevitably start doing instead is we start seeking our crowns in this world. We start seeking our rewards in the, the, the things that this world would hold out to us as meaningful and significant and end up diverting us from uh, the, the calling that Jesus would place upon our lives. Paul didn't just focus on a crown, though. A crown can be an impersonal thing. It can be even just talking about a, a reward. It can kind of feel like a, like a transaction of some kind. But when Paul was getting beaten up, pushed down, his focus wasn't just on a reward. It was on a person. He had his focus on Jesus Christ. In verse 19, he talks about his hope before our Lord Jesus at his com- coming. When he sat in the stocks at Philippi, when he was beaten in, with rods, when he was imprisoned and he was feeling the pain of the bruises, he would not just think about a, a reward, he would think about a person. He would remember that Jesus Christ had suffered for him. He would remember that Jesus Christ had died on that cross out of love for him and out of an expression of gratefulness and joy at what Jesus had done, he could find the strength to live in response for him. But his, his focus was on meeting that Savior someday. His focus was on living in such a way that when he met his Savior, he could do so with joy and confidence and good pleasure. Uh, for those of you who have had uh, the privilege of knowing Beryl, you know that when we celebrated her funeral, you would know that we celebrated the life of someone who lived every day with her eyes focused on meeting her Savior. There was an expectation of meeting him. And, and it wasn't just a future hope. It was something that gave fuel and power and strength to the days. We've had the privilege of learning from someone who showed us how to do that. It's, it's in the scriptures. We know it's there. We try to do it, and yet we've, we've seen it. We've experienced it firsthand. And I want to call you to not live like everyone else in our culture is doing for today. For, for that next appointment, but to live with your heart set on that Savior who's coming, the one who's coming with reward, the one who's coming with blessing, the one who's coming with relief, with joy. And as you do, as you focus your heart on that person, you remember that that person is the one who will finally bring victory. And we can look forward to that day with victory. He assures us of that victory in Romans 16, 20, where it says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Paul was writing to people who experienced the pain of the battle. They were experiencing the opposition, the hindrance, the the temptation, the persecution. And frankly, sometimes it felt like it was too much. Can't handle it. And if your life is just focused on what is happening today, you will feel like, I can't handle it. I think it's too much for me. And yet, as we live with our eyes focused not on today, but on that day that is coming, that day when Satan will, when, 
when Jesus will crush Satan under our feet, we can find strength for that battle. When you know that victory is coming, you can deal with some of the challenges that come in the daily battles. And that's the invitation of this passage. It's an invitation to look to Jesus Christ and to live with the anticipation of his coming. Now, I started today with the story of a giraffe. I'm going to end with the story of a snake. Uh, the, the story is told by Carolyn Ahrens, and she had, uh, as a young child attending church, had heard a missionary story that never left her. Uh, the story was of, uh, it was a, a missionary report. A, a couple had returned on home assignment, and uh, they told the story of their life in uh, the jungle setting where they served. As they served, one day, a enormous uh, snake slithered right into their little, very simple home. Over two meters in length, it terrified them, and the family scattered. They uh, very quickly ran out of the house and found a, a neighbor panicked. What on earth do we do? Uh, the, the neighbor very um, uh, confidently and reassuringly went into the house with a machete and with a single slice took off the head of this enormous, enormous snake. At, at that point, he went back outside and he said, I've killed the snake. There's just one catch. He said, with this snake, it will take a couple of hours before the snake knows that it's dead. It will take some time where b before the snake knows that it's, it's actually lost its head and has no possibility of future life. And, 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 and he said, so don't go back into your home. It will, and, and they listened outside while it continued to thrash about in their home and uh, continued to uh, give out those last pangs of its life here on this earth. As they were outside, the missionary couple is uh, in, in still in this shock and panic, panic, reflecting on this situation, and they say to one, one another, this is exactly like what it's like with Satan. At the cross, Jesus Christ dealt that final blow, that, that death blow to, Jesus, to, to, to Satan, and in a sense, took off his head. But he continues to thrash about in our lives. And, and maybe for some of you this morning, you are feeling the work of Satan thrashing about, and he feels so alive and real, and it feels like he's got way more strength than you've got for the battle. The encouragement of the scriptures is that Jesus really has dealt that, that fatal blow to Satan. The encouragement of the scriptures that we looked at from Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Jesus under your feet. That that day of victory is coming and we can look forward to it with anticipation and hope. We, we need to still though, be, be ready knowing that he's coming for us. And, and we get ready, not by flexing our mus muscles and pretending like we're strong enough to take them on, but we get close to the herd. We develop deeper relationships with one another so we can lift each other up, encourage one another. We can pray with one another that we might be strong together. 
And as we do so, as we try and strengthen and encourage one another together, we are going to point one another to a different day. Not just today, not living just in the moment, but pointing to a final day when Jesus will show us the fulfillment of that victory. When Satan will be once and for all, not just defeated, but eliminated from our lives altogether, and we will enjoy the great peace that Jesus has purchased for us. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the the help that you give, and we pray that you would give us strength for the battle. We pray that you would protect us and build us and, and give us your grace and help. I pray, Father, that no one in this room would be a casualty because they were unprepared for Satan's attacks. He will come. Help us to take time to build our relationships with one another. Help us to deepen our fellowship. And help us to live with our eyes on Jesus' return. With our eyes on his reward. And with our eyes on his victory. For we praise you. In Jesus' name.